We're going to be in Jonah chapter 3. We're going to read the entirety of that chapter in the first five verses of chapter 4 together. Let me kind of give you a recap of where we've been. I've tried to make the case that every single thing you need to understand about the world, about uh, what the Bible teaches about who God is and who people are, is visible in the book of Jonah. It's all there. From the nature of God, His character, the way that he works in and through people for the sake of the world, all the way to the nature of human beings and how they relate to God. It's all there. All the components are there. And so up to this point, God has reached out to Jonah and said, a word of command, go and take a trajectory toward this city. Tell this city a hard thing. And it exposes something in Jonah that he doesn't want God to tell him who he is. He wants to impose his will. He wants to be God. He doesn't want anyone to tell him who he is or what he should do. And so he runs. He runs as far and fast as he can away from the presence of God. And God in his mercy waits to save him. Just waits until finally he realizes that running isn't going to help him. And God is waiting to deliver him and save him through miraculous and unbelievable means a fish. And a fish delivers him just like God does three days later to where he meant for him to be all along. So beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3, God gives him another chance. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what he did, how they turned away, or excuse me, turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. But... It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? 
Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. I want you to see here that even though God has done an amazing work, even though God has done something powerful in Jonah, and this transformative experience with God's grace has sent him on mission, it exposes something about him. And what do you see? While Jonah's transformation by God's grace propels him to mission, the mission exposes his need for ongoing transformation by God's grace. We saw last week, if you are failing in mission, like if, if the gospel is a secret you're, you're willing to keep, then the gospel means very little to you. And if God hasn't saved you from much, then you won't go to many. If God's grace isn't that great, then neither will his purpose in your life and in the world be. And your sense of wandering and not knowing your purpose will be directly related to the fact that you have no sense of identity in what God has done for you. It propels us into mission. Right, the, the mission that Jonah was originally given, and it exposed him for what he, uh, what he was. A hypocrite, a liar, a fake. He's the bad guy in the story. It exposed him, but then when God redeems him, restores him through miraculous means, he doesn't give him a new mission or, or allow him to get off the hook, but he re, reinstates him to that same purpose. And God's grace that transforms Jonah, changes his vector and trajectory in life, puts him back on the path of God's mission. This is what God does. He is unrelenting. He pursues his people. And he even, in this case, pursues the people far from him. People running from him like Jonah or people rebelling from him like those in Nineveh. The Assyrians, the violent ones. And even though Jonah has been transformed and redeemed by this amazing thing, something happens when he gets back on mission, when he gets back on track, jumps back into God's purpose for him, it exposes that he needs grace in an ongoing manner. So I want us to walk through the text here. I want to kind of expose something for you. And, and this is something I've been, I've been hinting at all along, all along. But there's a, a 20th century author that, uh, uh, that I, I've, I've just, man, I, if I could commend one idea that he puts forth and when he talks about the, this is not a Christian, this is not a believer talking. This is just a person who studies the world, studies human nature. And I love Andre Malraux. He, his, his summary of the human condition is this. He says, man is not what he thinks he is. He is what he hides. His identity isn't in the things that he would impose upon himself, that he would ascribe to himself. A person's identity isn't really on what they would assess of themselves. In fact, a person is their blind spot. And even worse, a person is, a per is the thing that they are most ashamed of or most want to hide. Jesus goes right after this, doesn't he? This seems to be like the MO of Jesus' ministry. If you come to Jesus and people, you know, on a regular basis would come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I love you, I want to help you, I want to follow you. And he was like, yeah, right? Give me the thing. Give me the thing you're hiding. Give me the thing that you don't want anyone to know. And he went, always went right after it. Where there was the rich young ruler and he was like, you know what's keeping you? Your riches. Give them to me. And he's like, no, he leaves. The woman at the well who he confronts and she's like, well, you know, the guy I'm living with isn't my husband. And he's like, yeah, you're right. Neither had the last illicit relationships you've been in. Give me the thing. And he goes right after the thing. That, the thing that you would want to hide, you would want to keep a secret. You wouldn't want anyone to know. Here's the beautiful thing. Jesus knows it. Jesus knows it. And he, here's the fun part. 
God knows this about Jonah, and he pursues him anyway. God knows Jonah's heart. Jesus knows people's heart, and yet we see the nature of God's unrelenting, unrelenting grace, his humble pursuit as he stoops down to pursue people, even knowing the things they want to hide. So while Jonah seems to want to think maybe he's, he's on the right track, the mission exposes that which he would like to keep a secret. And I want to push towards that thing might be the thing that you're currently finding your identity in, good or bad. So Jonah hides his hate for Nineveh, has no love for them. So let's walk through chapter 3, and then we'll just kind of see what a, a provocative uh, turn of events the verse 1 of chapter 4 really is. The, the first five verses of chapter 3, I think, are here to confront us. They're here to, like, to like expose something in us. They're like God's grace to you and to me. An amazing thing happens Jonah jumps out there onto God's mission, says what God wants him to say, and the people respond. This exposes some skepticism in me. I don't know if it does for you. But it exposes something that I think is important for us to consider. It's just this, okay? See, God never calls us to anything because we are able. God calls us to things because he is able. This is a powerful thing. I think that will transform your understanding of the nature of God and the nature of his unmerited an unobligated grace and favor towards us. His grace for us is never because we deserve it. His forgiveness is of is never because we've repented enough. It's, it's something that he's doing because he is able. And therefore now the mission that God has for the purpose of the world, glorifying him, finding redemption and hope in God such that they will glorify him and enjoy him forever and ever is something that he's doing. God's about this. And when he invites us into it, he's not calling us into it because he thinks we are able. Now this is exposed of Jonah, isn't it? This is exposed of Jonah. When, when, when he's in his weakest estate, when he is helpless and hopeless, it exposes him. He can't do this. He's unable. He's unable, unable to do it without God. And here's what I would pose for you, and I would kind of maybe encourage you to think about. like God doesn't need you. He doesn't need you. God is going to do this. He doesn't need your help. He invites us into his mission, into his purpose of redemption of the world, not because he needs us, but because he loves us. He invites us into help, not because he thinks that we'll be able to help, but he, he does this because he loves us and cares for us. Let me illustrate it this way. And I, again, I think this is God's, the father heart of God is exposed here. He calls Jonah into doing something that if Jonah were to assess himself, you see what happens in the first two chapters. Like, I'm out of here. There's no way I can do this. Or in, in the worst case, there's no way he even wants to do this. I, I would explain it to you in, in two different ways. One in the past and one that I've, I've learned in the present. And so um, some years ago, a couple, deca couple decades ago, uh, maybe more, I don't know. I don't want to tell you how many actually now. Uh, it was a long time ago. My, uh, my, own, my own brother and I just wanted, you know, like any good sons, to be like our father. And so I would do something. Once a week, uh, I would get out my, my lawnmower, okay? Now, this is one of those lawnmowers. Fisher-Price makes this kind of lawnmower. It's got all sorts of interesting, bright, you know, colors on it. And when you, and when you run it, uh, it clicks, right? 
Uh, mine didn't blow bubbles. Those were the cool kids. They had those. We didn't have one of those. Ours was a hand-me-down. Uh, but it's this little lawnmower that had uh, had a little, little like a windmill that spun, and, and you, could, you could push around. And, and I loved, more than anything, I would go put on an old pair of jeans with holes in them, like my dad. I would put on my boots. Um, I had, like, mine were like water boots. He had actual boots, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm doing my best. And I would get my lawnmower out, and in my, in my young age, I would go mow the lawn with my father. Now, you know, my little mower had no real effect, right? It didn't do anything. But there was something amazing. My father, to his credit, knowing that, you know, he was a bright guy, that this plastic little mower actually didn't mow any grass, didn't scold me and didn't say, you know, get out of here with that silly toy. But what did he do? He allowed it, encouraged it, probably even relished it. And it's a beautiful thing that we see here, a beautiful thing that we, I think we have in the Father heart of God. He calls us into something and allows us to participate. Even though, let's be honest, you may just be making a lot of noise. You may not actually be doing anything. Uh, you may just, on your best day, just might be a cute little imitation of God our Father. But make no mistake about it, God calls us into this. Not because he needs us, but because he loves us. He draws us into this. I've learned this the hard way because now my daughters want to do things that their daddy does. And here's what I'll tell you. This is, I, I just got to be honest about this. And I learned this, probably my father experienced this and he was gracious and he didn't tell uh, me. Maybe he told someone else like I'm telling you. Um, when my daughters want to help with something, I cringe. Like there's part of me that's like, oh. So even, even, even next door, my daughters helped my wife and I paint um, the office space next door, um, and they wanted help, and they wanted to, you know, get a roller out, and I'm like, this is going to make a bigger mess than, than if I were just to do by myself. And I got to confess something to you. I got to expose something. I wanted to be like, no, I'll do this. I can do it faster. I don't need your help. This is going to make life more difficult for me. But luckily, my wife giving me this, you know, the, the stare. I don't know if you've ever had this, but my wife just, sometimes it's a squeeze, uh, but even the worst one is a stare. And it's like, and, you know, I can't even, I mean, there's a lot of them. They mean a lot of things. There's nuances to these things. I can't explain them all. I'd take hours, right? But this one translated, don't do what you're doing. Stop being a deadbeat dad. Let your daughters help. Do what it takes. That was what the stare communicated to me. It was a pretty good translation. I might have missed here and there. Punctuation might have been out of alignment there. But, I kind of went out of my way so that they could help. And I made it such that they could kind of paint along in front of me and I could come back with the massive 18-inch roller and just cover it all up. <laughs> and here's what I'll tell you. It didn't make the job easier. It made the job longer. It made it more difficult. But there's something, something happened there. My daughters got to be on board with what their father was about. You get this? God doesn't call us into mission. God doesn't call us to proclaim a message to the world because we're somehow clever or we're somehow capable of doing something he's incapable of doing. God is a loving father. And because he is, he, he allows his children to be about his business. He allows us to be a part of what he is doing. He doesn't need our help. He doesn't need our assistance. But because he is good, he allows every day of the Christian life to be take your kid to work day. 
Take your mess of a kid to work. He's going to make life, he's going to make the mission more difficult. He's going to get in the way. But our God, a loving father, allows us to mow behind, allows us to paint ahead, allows us to jump in, not because he needs us, but because he loves us. The first five verses of chapter three are just that. Hey, go tell these people what I'm telling you to tell them. And he does it. And what happens? A miracle. The whole city goes, it's struck with fear. Struck with fear. Now, later empires past the Assyrians, this is even more common, where if something scared the people, the, the leader would call, we talked about this last week, they would call the city to a kind of repentance, like stop doing, everybody stop doing what you're doing. Like if there was a natural disaster or something that shocked the city, like a, like a solar or lunar eclipse, something out of the ordinary, and, and the king would say, stop what you're doing, assuming that like whatever you just did was causing this bad thing, stop doing it. So it's common. But in this case, whatever it is, it's, it's struck by the mission, the message that Jonah is preaching to the city. Whatever he says strikes a chord, and it goes all the way to the king. It goes all the way to the king. Now, I don't want you to be skeptical about this. One of uh, an important book I think that was, that was written, it's Whose Religion is Christian anyway, Christianity Anyway by Laman Sanek, um, talks about some beautiful things that, that how, how Christianity more than anything else has the ability to, to be assimilated into every single culture. And it, and it declares something about the nature of Christ because you, you aren't necessarily in in Christianity called to be a part of like a political alignment or some sort of structured alignment, but, but it, it renews and transforms people in every single culture. There are, you know, you've renewed people from this continent, renewed people from this continent. This is, this is good because our imperialistic nature is to make people who are Christians look just like us, look, act, and talk, and, act, you know, and, and appear to be just like us. Whereas what Christ says, it says, no, regardless of your tribe, tongue, or nation, you're going to look and talk and act like me. That's what Jesus does with Christianity. But, but if you're skeptical of this, I, I want you to even think about what, what Sanek says in, in his work. He, he points out that at, 19, at the turn of the century, of the 20th century, about 1900, there were around 9 million Christians in the continent of Africa. And that made up roughly about 9% of the entire population of the continent of Africa at that time. At the time that he published this book several years ago, there were over 380 Christians on the continent of Africa. That's right at about 50% of the entire continent identifying themselves as followers of Jesus. So I want to push back against any skepticism that you might have welling up in your own mind. If I tell them about Jesus, if I, if I proclaim the message that God gives me, they're not going to listen. They're going to reject me. I, I want to push back on you. This happens. And, and you only disagree with it because you just happen to be situated in a Western country at the moment. If you were in Latin America, Central America, or Africa, this seems much more realistic. Your, your, your skepticism that God can do this is only conditioned by the culture in which you now live. Uniquely. As we talk about on a regular basis, one of our kind of the fathers of the faith, uh, for us a missiologist, Leslie Newbigin, talks about how, how the most difficult to reach places in the world are Western places. The places most cut off and closed off to the gospel are Western societies. So just know, you're, when, you, when, when God says, go and say, go and tell, go and do, that mission that he's going to accomplish that exposes your own self-centeredness can be seen right here. Because if you're skeptical against this, you're just living on a weird continent. This is normal. This is happening. This is what God does. But it also exposes kind of a characteristic of God himself. 
Notice that the message he comes and he gives is a message of judgment. Well, that's a popular message. But I want you to see the grace of the Father heart of God working in it. See, the presence of the messenger is evidence in and of itself of God's grace. Don't miss that. Like, the fact that God sends a messenger is his grace. Think about this. Like, if you just want to destroy someone, you don't warn them. You don't tell them. Right? If I just want to punish my daughters, I just punish them. But since I want them to change, since I want there to be something in their behavior in their own hearts that are softened and changed, what do you do? You, you give them a picture of the consequences. Now, I don't mean idle threats. I don't mean like, if you do this, I'm, I'm going to do something, and you, and you throw out a threat that you'll never do. But, but this is something that's beautiful. Like You can see the Father heart of God in here. If God wanted to destroy these people, he had no need to send a messenger. But do you see this gracious move of God? Even the word of wrath in this instance is in fact a word of God's grace. I think that means that one of the most important, pre, pre, I'll say it's a, a presuppositional apologetic that, that the church is going to have to engage in for the life of our culture, that is that we're going to have to intentionally and and, 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 and directly speak towards, towards the thing that people already assume to be true. Remember we talked about this at the beginning. Like, what's your, what's your sacred text? People who quote sacred texts all the time, they're like, YOLO, and they say it as though they're like quoting the Bible, right? And you're like, what's your sacred text, okay? People do, they don't even know this. You know, they just, they have sayings that they believe um, that, that they, they don't even know where it comes from. And, and I think the, the work of the church is to speak directly to that. And one of those presuppositions that I think the church will have to push back against in order to, to cultivate a spot where the gospel can be fruitful is right here. Is this picture that a message of wrath can actually be a message of love. Our culture hates this. Right? We talked about this before. The gospel are these two powerful contradictions. You're wrong you're loved, right? The gospel is both. You are in sin. You deserve the wrath of God, and yet you, you have the unmerited favor and love of God, right? These are, now, now, our culture tends to want one or the other and tends to think that you can't actually say one without the other, and we're at a place now where you can't say you're wrong to a person without them being, like, feeling unloved, and, and, and the, the current state of public discourse reflects this, right? Like, you can't have a conversation about a hot topic without immediately, like, inciting hate or a riot. Got it? Um, whereas, on the other hand, there's, there's this picture of like, if I love you, I'm not allowed to disagree with you. Seen this? Well, here's what I think the church is called to do here if we're going to learn from Jonah's lesson and demonstrate the heart of God to, to people that we know and love. Is that, uh, we just ask, how's that working out for you? Oh, so you love something, right? You love. Have you ever been mad as a result of that love? Because isn't that funny? Like the thing that you love the most has a strange ability to make you the maddest. I mean, you can do all sorts of fun things to me, and it might annoy me, but you know who can like hurt me the most? Who can like who knows the 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 key to the combination of make Jonathan mad safe? You know what that is? My wife. And I love like she's the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. I love her. She's my favorite thing in the whole world. Okay? But do you know what's something strange about her? She has the ability to make me mad like no one else. She knows the buttons. I'm just and it's, I mean, just, sometimes it's a look, sometimes it's a look, and I translate, I mean, same way. Like, and it's a strange thing. I think we can push this back on our culture and say, that love that you talk about, that you experience, 
Are you saying that you love and you're never angry? You're never frustrated? Because I think what you'll, you'll find is that real love demands that. And put it this way. I love my wife. But if you harm her or hurt her, and I'm not angry, there's a problem. You see, real love, selfless, this kind of humble pursuit, this kind of love that you demonstrate for a person demands wrath. It demands anger. And if you don't believe it, again, just look at the last few things that you love or take the thing you love and throw it away and practice this. You really, it demands anger. It demands this. And it's actually that when God speaks this word to the city of Nineveh, even though it's a cold and harsh word, a word that says you're wrong, the fact that there is a messenger is evidence of his grace. If God wanted to destroy them, he would have just destroyed them. But, but since he loves them, he sends a messenger to say, stop, please quit. I think one of the ways that we're going to demonstrate this kind of love that God demonstrates here to the city of Nineveh, to the world, will be the same thing. To say, hey, I love you. And you're wrong. And one doesn't harm the other. One actually demands the other. Because if you could just go around telling people that they're wrong without any love, then you're just, you're just angry. You're, just a, you're, a, you're a warrior with no cause. But if you go around just loving people and not actually helping them and saying, hey, this might be better for your long-term health and growth, then you don't love them, you just love their approval. We see this picture here, the Father heart of God that does this. But here's something else that we also see. Our lack of grace. It's possible. Our lack of grace can be seen in our brevity and lack of thoughtfulness about the message. Look at the way he speaks. He says, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. This is literally five words in the Hebrew. F five words. Now, we presume that that isn't the only thing he said. We presume that this is probably a summary. This is him probably saying this message with more. But still, what, notice what's not there. Notice what's not in Jonah's message. Like, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Right? And we find out later, he knows that God is slow to anger. He knows that God is merciful. He knows that God is capable of grace. Do you remember the first two chapters? He was stuck in a fish. He knows, like if there's anyone who knows that God is gracious, it's him. But what did he just happen to leave out? What did he just happen to not include here? Anything about God's grace. Encouragement here. Uh, even an anger-ridden hypocrite like Jonah can be used by God to be effective. Even in his anger, even in his frustration, it still seems to work. God still uses it. But we learn a little bit about him there, don't we? You can kind of see into his own view, can't you? You can kind of see insightfully into his understanding of God, even just by the way that what he says is, look, 40 days and God is going to drop the hammer. And here's what I would say. If we're not taking the time, if the people that God has called you to love for the sake of his glory, for the sake of redeeming them and in giving them a sense of hope and purpose in the world, aren't people that you spend enough time to win the right to be heard, then it's probably obvious to everybody but you. There, there's a cultivating, a digging up before there was a planting of seeds. And we could just be square and say, Jonah didn't do that. All I want to say here is just, is it possible that there's something about the way in which that you either speak of Jesus or 
even more painfully, don't speak of Jesus that actually reveals what you truly believe about Jesus? Does it expose something in you and in your own heartlessness and lack of thoughtfulness for the sake of the people that God has sent you to love? It's possible. Because we see that while Jonah's transformation in the fish was the radical act of God's grace to put him back where he belonged, it was the mission that he resumed that exposed his ongoing need for it. So let me just kind of end on that. It's, it says it reached the king of Nineveh. It says he rose from his throne, he removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat in ashes. Uh, just side note here, this is, again, this is a, an uncomfortable kind of a place that I think we would regularly push back against. Uh, that isn't something we like, oh, I'm just going to mourn today. No, this is something that evidently God can use this kind of mourning for the sake of, of drawing people to himself. And then he, he spread the message to everyone. Whatever Jonah was saying, I, again, I said last week, I think it was because he was probably smelled and looked like he'd been in a fish. Uh, and that, like, have you heard the fish guy? Yeah, but yeah, I've heard the fish guy. And so I think there was a whole lot of things that God was doing and, and working through this that caused the whole city to get excited. And here's what you would expect at the very end, after verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil wills, God relented over the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Even though the people get the words there, God, God des- like these people deserve God's wrath, but they didn't get what they deserved. They didn't get the punishment they deserved. Instead, they got the mercy that they didn't deserve. And that's where verse 11, you should expect. There should be like a verse 11 that says, and Jonah returned to his home rejoicing. Anybody who's ever served in any capacity, like as a parent, as a, as if, if you work for, for the government anyway, if you've been a teacher, a helper, a coach, if you've tried to do a politician, you've tried to do anything that would help someone, chapter three is like, like the greatest story ever, right? I came in, I helped, I said, stop doing that, and they did it. Right, we, we joke about this in our home. When, like, if there's a fight amongst people, I'll come back and I'll, and I'll go, like, I, I told him, I told him to stop. You know, the, the girls are fighting, and I, and I go, stop doing that. And I go, hey, I told him to stop. I took care of it. Because we know that doesn't do anything. Like, it stops it for a little bit. But, like, this is where you would expect. It worked. He spoke, and it worked. It should say, Jonah returned rejoicing. But in a way that I, I would say that makes me love the Bible more, in a way that only the Bible can do, it exposes one of the most dangerous tendencies amongst the religious and, more, religious and moralistic. Instead of responding with joy, it says in verse 1 of chapter 4, it, di- it displeased Jonah exceedingly. It displeased him, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this exactly what I said before I ran off? Now, I want you to see here that being on the mission exposed a deep weakness. It even exposed, remember what Malro tells us? It exposed what Noah probably wanted to hide all along. That is who he really is when no one's looking. It exposed them. Now, side note, this is something that's important for us as a church, okay? I, I would just, this is just step aside and point out the way that sanctification and mission work together. It is a tendency in the American church to gravitate toward one to the detriment of the other, right? You kind of have the sanctification church, all about doctrine, all about sound biblical teaching, all about, you know, calling out sin, confessing, repenting, looking, these are sound doctrinal churches, um, but they, to their own detriment, they, they become so 
so absolutely obsessed with themselves and with their own growth that they, they, they miss the fact that like, they have no impact on their city around them. If, the, if this church, all sanctified, disappeared, literally no one in the city would miss them. Okay? Whereas on the other tendency of the American church, is, it's the all-mission church. It's the how many people can we get in the same room at the same time, right? Let's grow as fast as the church growth movement for the last three decades. Let's grow the church as much as we... Who cares what we believe? Let's, let's not worry about doctrine. Let's not worry about sound theology. Let's not listen to what Jesus actually says. Let's not talk about those things that would make people angry. Let's just get as many people here. And, and have you seen this? This is, this is the tendency. And so I'm waiting to say, this is going to be in us. Our tendency at any given point is going to be to like, be all about ourselves so that we can be right and look down our noses at everyone who's wrong. Or the tendency will be to, to brag about how many people like our church and like us, frankly, that look, act, and talk exactly like us, to the detriment of what Jesus actually teaches. See this? And I want you to see they're both necessary. They fuel one another. In fact, if you do one to the detriment of the other, you're not doing it right. So if the way that you grow in understanding the Bible and understanding Jesus' teaching, his atonement and justifying finished work on the cross for us makes you to turn your back towards your city, you're like Jonah. You're, me- you're missing the point. You, you're, you've, you've forgotten what God is doing. He's saved you to put you on mission. You were not that special. He saved you not because you deserved it, but because he is glorious. And he wants to use you as an example. You've missed it. But on the other hand, if you're so obsessed with people liking you and agreeing with you to the point that you're afraid to say anything that's truthful because it might harm someone, well, then just know this is the tendency working in both of us. Our tendency is to want either to be right or to be accepted. And they're both necessary. They're both necessary. One fuels the other. And if you're doing one, like if you're trying to gather people to talk about Jesus to the point where anything goes and you don't actually listen to what Jesus says, then you're doing it wrong. Don't call it mission. You're not making disciples of Jesus. You're making disciples of you. And it's important because they expose one another. Here's how this looks for me. I'm going to owe my daughters a lot of money for mentioning them a lot this week. Uh, So I got a couple of degrees in theology, okay? from some prestigious un- universities and, and places, okay? But do you know who can shred right through that? My five-year-old. And, and she'll ask questions. We'll talk, okay, we're, we're walking through the catechism. Like, you know, we're talking about Jesus on a regular basis. I talk to them about it when I'm preaching. And, and, and I'm, I'm just kind of expounding upon, this is what the text says. This is Jesus. I'm just, just nailing it, right? It's awesome. And my five-year-old, she'll say, like, why did Jesus, you know, why did Jesus have to go to the cross? And with all my degrees, I'm just like, oh, how do I translate this to a five-year-old? What a, you need a, you're going to need a notepad. This is going to take a while, right? And, and for all my education and sanctification and understanding of the gospel, mission exposes my greatest weakness, doesn't it? It exposes the thing I want to hide. And that's it. Are you capable of teaching your own daughter about who Jesus is and how glorious he is? And what an awful thing to have exposed. But that's what mission does. Mission exposes the weakness. Mission exposes your idol. Mission exposes your love of self, if you're Jonah. It exposes your self-righteousness. It exposes it in the same way that sometimes sanctification, growing in doctrine and holiness, exposes your failure in mission. What are you teaching people? 
Is it about the finished work of Christ? Do you teach people about Jesus and the hard things that he says about sin? You know who talks about hell more than anyone in the Bible? Jesus. So are, are, if, if you're not careful, what will happen is even though you think you can get people together and agree on Jesus, if you start talking about what Jesus really is and what the Bible teaches he actually has done, you, you realize it exposes something, isn't it? It exposes a gaping hole in your sanctification. These things work together. They work together. And I want you to see, we get the picture for this here. We get this paradigm of what it looks like to, to, to even though he's experienced a radical transforming grace, the minute he steps out in, back into God's purpose, it exposes the place where grace clearly hasn't infiltrated. Did you get it? He was on his way, and then he's like, I'm angry. And it exposes something that's awful. It's hard to translate, it says, but it, was, it says it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. That, that sounds redundant, doesn't it? Because it's a really difficult phrase to translate. It says literally, he became evil with evil. He became furious with fury. You got to make the ironic connection here that Jonah tells us about himself, right? I don't know if you caught this. The, the people were told... And, and the king repeats in, in verse 8 of chapter 3, like, everyone's going to call out to God and let everyone turn from his what? From his evil and from violence. This was, a vi- this was the most violent empire that had existed up to this point. It was the, the, they laid the groundwork for the modern empire. They, they, they knew how to inflict harm, okay? They knew how to harm people and get them to do what, what they told them to do. This was a powerful, violent empire. And so he says... Let's stop being evil and violent. And yet, when, when he does this, it says that Jonah became evil and violent. So the best way to translate this would be to kind of say like, when the people turned from their violence and God chose not to inflict violence upon them, Jonah became violently angry. The thing that he hated the most the thing about the Assyrians that he likely couldn't stand the most was the thing that the mission exposed in himself. Don't miss this. This is a, this is a terrifying thing. This is a terrifying thing that I, I, would, I would push on you. The thing that you probably hate the most about some people around you is probably the thing that's the most true about you. The thing that annoys you about other people. Not always, but it's possible that that's the thing that bothers you the most. So if you have like a massive fury towards your parents, right? If you have like a, this is, this is where it's most visible. Like I hate my mom because she's this. I, I want to warn you. I, I bet a large amount of money you hate that about her even more now because you see it happening in you. Often, this is just the way the broken, depraved mind of the human being works. The thing that we're the most angry about is the thing that we're the most terrified of seeing in ourselves. I hate my old man. He was such a fill in the blank. And I bet if you look in the mirror, you're terrified of seeing that in yourself. Where do I get that? Did you see Jonah? He became evil with the evil that he hated about the Assyrians. And it 
clouded his judgment. It closed his eyes. It made it impossible for him to minister to them. It made it impossible for him to obey God because he was so angry about what he saw that he couldn't see in, in his own reflection those characteristics. And this is the kind of thing that will expose it. And what happens is he sits, I don't, look where the, this little passage ends. He goes, in verse 5 it says he goes outside of the city and he sits out there and he just waits and he pouts. And he's waiting for the city to be destroyed. And I want to warn you. I warn you because, again, I see this in myself. Um, if you're not living on grace-propelled mission, you might be the most dangerous, destructively self-righteous one of all. If the good news that you've experienced and discovered in Christ is, a, is so good that you're willing to keep it a secret, then you, like Jonah, might be the most violent one of all. I say that, again, it's taken me years to say, like, and this is only in the last few years I've come to grips with this. Um, I'm, I'm getting to where I'm a better son to my mother. Uh, my mother and I have always butted heads. And, uh, and I'll say this, this is going to hurt to say out loud even. The reason we don't get along is because we're so much alike, okay? Now, don't use that against me, all right? When my mom visits and you don't, okay, just be easy on me. I'm new to this. But, like, the thing that annoys me the most about her, <laughs> ugh, that's who I am. And people will tell you, you're just like your mother, and, oh, I want to fight them. And I want to I show you, in even some small way, if, if, if that thing about the world, that thing about the world that's keeping you from sharing the love of God, winning the right to be heard, cultivating places where the gospel can be declared, if that thing about the world that's hindering you from doing this becomes visible to you, I want you to realize it's probably exposing something about you. Here's the way it probably looks for Jonah, maybe it looks for you. Who are those people? Who are those people? Not the us, not the we, but them. Who are them to you? The people that bother you, annoy you. You think, I'm not supposed to think these kinds of thoughts when I'm, when I'm worshiping. Oh, yeah, yeah, you are. I want, you to be, I want it to be exposed. And just begin to reflect. Is it possible that the thing that you hate about them is exposing something that you might hate about who you really are? And until you allow God's grace to renew you, and again, God was not surprised by this. God was not shocked. He's like, oh no, Jonah's a failure. I didn't see that coming. I mean, like, it's, God wasn't like, it wasn't any way caught off guard. But God in his mercy, like a loving father who allows his kid to follow behind him with a lawnmower and allows his kid to paint the walls and make a mess that he's happily ready to clean up, draws his children into his mission to expose the places where he wants to show them the greatest amount of grace. And you will never be able to show that kind of grace to the people around you until you recognize your need for that grace in your own heart. You'll never be able to speak a word of truth to those people until that truth resonates deeply inside of you. And either because you're full of hate or fear, fill in the blank. You'll be hindered. You won't step out. You won't be obedient. You see, our experience of God's grace reveals our ongoing and continual need for it. 
And our God is merciful. He allows these things to be exposed so that we can be restored. I want you to hear the good news here. I want you to catch this. If you go to Luke chapter 22, you'll see this. This is where I want us to land. I want us to see the greater Jonah. I want you to see what Jonah prepares us for, and then we're going to take communion together. You see, Jonah went outside of the city, went outside of the city, and wait for the city to be killed. But Jesus went outside of the city that would kill him to mourn and weep for the salvation of the city. The book of Hebrews tells us that we have a Savior who went outside the camp for us. And our Savior Jesus didn't go outside the camp like Jonah to sit back and and get excited about our destruction. Our Savior went outside the camp to pay the price that we could not pay. To demonstrate for us what Jonah is angry about and what we delight in. Lord, hear the tone, I love it. I knew it. I knew, I mean, just, just think about it, what he's saying. I knew you were a gracious God. You, you gracious God, you. I knew you were merciful and slow to anger. I knew you were abounding in steadfast love. Oh, you, I can't stand how much you're abounding in steadfast love. I knew you would relent from disaster. And he goes out to the camp, or outside of the camp, outside of the city, and mourns over this. Whereas our Savior goes outside of the camp, trudges up a hill, dies on a cross, and says to us, God is a gracious God. He's merciful. He is slow to anger. Ah, friend, he's not surprised by your failures. He's not surprised by that thing that you want to hide. You know the thing, the thing that's really you. He's not surprised by it. Do you know what he is? He is wealthy. He is full, it says here, abounding in steadfast love. And he is so quick to relent. Oh, he's so quick. At the drop of a sackcloth, the drop of of any sort of mourning and repentance, he is quick to relent. Friend, this is our Savior. This is what Jesus has done for us. And Jonah gives us an appetite for what our Savior looks like, who stands in the place of this man Jonah. He shows us the better and more perfect way to leave the city and save the city. So in a moment here, we're going to celebrate communion together, as is our custom. So this is what we're going to do. This is, we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. This is for believers. So if you're not a believer, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. I just wouldn't encourage you to take part of it. It wouldn't mean anything to you. It'd be a very unsatisfying snack, okay? It just wouldn't mean anything. But for the rest of us, this, this sacrifice begins to take on a new meaning because we realize that Jesus, our Jonah, has gone outside of the camp to take our place. And that begins to, I think, whether it's for Jonah or for us, it begins to soften us. We look at his sacrifice and it begins to soften us. It begins to expose us. It shows us what we maybe don't want to admit about ourselves and yet speaks a word, a gracious and powerful word of good news that even though this thing that you want to hide is probably who you really are, here's the blood of Christ shed for you. Here's the body of Christ broken for you. Even in those places, you want to keep a secret. So in a minute here, we're going we're gonna to begin to take communion. Our ushers are going to come. They're going to take up this morning's offering. We're going to have a chance to reflect and to prepare our hearts for this. And when you're ready, we're going to stand up, we're going to sing, and then when you're ready, you can go take communion.
But I want you to hear the good news of a God who is gracious, who is abounding in steadfast love. And even though, as Malrose says, right, the thing you want to hide, that's who you really are, God is not surprised by it, and he is still merciful, slow to anger, and his body is broken for your sake, and his blood is poured out for you, even in the places that you want to keep a secret. Let's pray together. Uh, God, we thank you for your mercy. Uh, We thank you especially... Uh, in this case, for your steadfast love. Uh, We thank you for what you have accomplished for us, that which we do not deserve. God, we confess that uh, your grace towards us exposes us for who we really are. It it reveals the places in our own lives where, whether by selfishness, idolatry, or hatred, maybe the bigotry of Jonah, reveals in us these places that we haven't allowed your grace to penetrate and to transform, to soften, and to bend toward your will. So as we prepare to celebrate the body and blood of Christ that's broken and poured out for our sin, would you allow us to begin to even now expose that? In these moments, would we confess openly and honestly our desperate need for your forgiveness? God, the failure in our mission and our purpose that we experience on a regular basis just exposes our greater need for your forgiveness. God, if you don't do this, we're not able. We cling to the promise that you have called us into this life of of sacrifice and love of our Savior and love for our world because you are able to accomplish it, not because we are. We know that we're not. So we begin to confess our own failure of grace, our own failure to love and care for the world you've sent us to. Would that propel us to to dig deeper and to to need and to want your grace all the more? May it be a powerfully and miraculously satisfying thing for those of us who know that we deserve the wrath of God to hear the words, here is the body of Christ. In spite of all that, broken on your behalf, May it be a deeply satisfying and nourishing thing for those of us who know that we deserve to be cast out, to be called near, to hear the good news that the blood of Christ has been poured out for us. This is our cry and this is our plea in the grace demonstrated for us in Jesus. Amen.